You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I've seen you on stage. You just you just own that stage. Like you're you're preaching, they're listening, and they're getting the message. Like you love it. Let's rewind and talk about when you found your purpose and passion and developed your craft. I mean, 1979, you taught a class with 10 people in it. Mm. And you probably then discovered, oh my gosh, I have some skill. I have some talent. I don't know whether I thought I had so much talent or not. I just knew that I loved helping people. It was a long time before I could really appreciate what I contributed. But in the meantime, what I appreciated was I loved helping people. I loved the feeling of adding value to somebody's life, of being there at a time that they needed me. And from that perspective, I entered into this stream of sharing ministry and, and giving my life to it. I think my destiny is to help you reach yours. The more that I help you reach your destiny, the more fulfilled I am as an individual. And contributing to others has this boomerang effect that it comes back to you in ways that are very, very fulfilling. So I am so happy to have Bishop T.D. Jakes on. I don't even know how to describe you. You've mm. written 50 books, 15 bestsellers. You've been, of course, a writer, a producer. You've acted in movies. Most importantly, you preach every week at your church, the Potter's House in Dallas. How many people do you think each week listen to you give a sermon? Wow, that's difficult to articulate. Normally... In our <clears throat> normally in our congregation, it may be six thousand people streaming online. And there may be an additional uh, thirty to forty thousand people. Then I have offsite campuses, each having about two thousand, and each one's about four thousand. Then it continues to air all week to roughly around two hundred thousand people. Yeah, and your YouTube videos have millions of views. And then we're in eighty million homes every week through television broadcasting. So it's a lot of people. I mean. You know, this concept of, uh, so so, I, I really want to talk about your, your book, Soar, which is about uh, entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And while I was reading it, I was amazed at, you know, despite what on the surface seems like our many differences, there are so many messages you say in here that are so important for the beginning entrepreneur, the advanced entrepreneur. And I actually was surprised there's so many things that overlap with my own books. I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not saying anything bragging about myself. This is, this is, you have great advice for any entrepreneur and from, from basic to advanced. And I, and I want to talk about it. And, and I think, you know, the evidence is you've built such a successful business. I mean, you're, you, how long has, has your, your quote unquote mega church been, been around or your well, business of it? Well, well, let's make a distinction. I, I had the Potter's house, which I've been the pastor of for 22 years. And then TDDX Enterprise, which is an entertainment company, uh, preceded the Potter's House. So I have a for-profit and a not-for-profit entity. And between the two, I have about 340 employees. So uh, they're, they're two different paths. So uh, it's, it's a great trail because a lot of times people will hear me preach and they think, well, the Potter's House is doing movies. No, it's not the Potter's House. It's the enterprise. And so it's a for-profit initiative. Then I have a not-for-profit. Then I have two one CDC and one EDC up under the umbrella of our corporations. And it's, but it seems though like your your core, the core thing you enjoy. I mean, I've I've seen you on stage. You just you just own that stage. Like you're you're preaching, they're listening, and they're getting the message. Like you love it. Oh, I do. You know, I think that's what I love about all of it. Because often I'm asked, you know, you write books, you do films, you do all of these different things, you preach, you know. They seem different, but to me they seem like one because it's communication. Whether it's on film or whether it's in a book or whether it's on stage, 
I like to communicate and I like to hear and speak and learn and listen and share. And thankfully, we have all these marvelous vehicles today, whether it's social media or Instagram, what have you, that we can connect with people. And why not do that to touch as many people as we can? And you have these core messages that you speak about. And I think particularly, uh, you know, I always view like many people in America are, and many people, for instance, who, who email me are in this condition of feeling stuck in their right. lives. And they don't really know how to get unstuck. And I think at core in many of your sermons that I've listened to, and particularly in this book, Soar, and in your, ranging from your first book, 50 Books Ago, Woman, Thou Art Loosed, mm-hmm. uh, you talk about you don't have to be stuck. You can be unstuck. Even if you don't know what that means, you can be unstuck. Yeah, I think it's very important that we become the masters of our own destiny, so to speak, uh, rather than the victim of our history. And we have an opportunity to reinvent ourselves. And often we don't take advantage of that. We, we really allow ourselves to be in prison, never realizing that we hold the key. So there we are stuck for years and years living in a world that we our decisions help to build. And if you change your decisions, you can change your world. And it's very, very important, whether you're a person of faith or just a person that's listening right now, that we understand that we can we can reinvent ourselves by reinventing our choices and decisions and make those changes and interact if you have the courage to go where you've never been before. And I think fear is really uh, the jailer that that holds most people captive. That, that's I mean, we're going to probably go off on a million tangents because I'm always <laughs> going to say, let's talk about your book. But what you just said, of course, was is in the book. But um, I think fear holds people back. But also, mm-hmm. people don't want to try something new. They want to say, "Okay, I've been doing this all along. Eventually, it will work." Or they, or they don't really know what it is. You know, they have to make some jump, but they don't know what direction to jump, or they'll fall off the cliff. Yeah, I agree with you. And and don't you think that sometimes uh, people don't know when to give up? You know, uh, you don't want to walk away from something just because you hit a snag. You can't be an entrepreneur and be effective if you're going to run away from bad seasons. Or or relationships. Or relationships or anything. But on the other hand, there has to be a point where you say, I'm not getting enough return on this investment to continue, whether it is a relationship or a business or or a life that you're living that you want to change. At what point do you say... uh, that I'm really becoming emotionally, spiritually, or financially bankrupt, and I really do need to make some changes. And I think that uh, requires some introspection and some soul-searching, and, and then the courage to make the changes and to go where you've never been before is refreshing. If you uh, do not allow your ego to typecast you in a role where you must always be the teacher— then you, if if so, you must always be in a class where you are already educated. If you're willing to be a student again and become a life learner and walk into a new realm and be willing to take the back seat and grow into it, we'll continue to grow all of our lives. And to me, that's really living. I think that willing to be a student is the part many people miss. Because when you first enter a classroom, let's just take an example, like you first enter a, a college classroom, Fear is a part of that. How will right. I do in this class? Will right. I learn something? Will will I make friends? Will I get educated? But you, but but society is set up so people feel comfortable. They have faith. If they go to this class, they because society taught them they'll they'll do well. But in general life, we're not in a classroom. We're in a, a business that might be stalling, or we might be in a relationship where we don't know what's happening. And and so, how do you think you can reach and 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 do that introspection? Like, what's a checklist? that one could go down and say, you know what, I'm not moving forward. Here, here's, here's one simple thing that's easy. If you live in a world, I always say it this way, if you're in a room uh, representing your world and you're the smartest person in the room, you've outgrown the room. Uh, if everybody in your life is feeding off you and no one is feeding you, you've outgrown that room. You want to be, you want to create a life for yourself where there is space to grow, where there is a certain uncertainty, where there is a certain ambiguity, because that creates creativity, because that creates curiosity, because that gives us space to listen as well as teach. Most of us find ourselves encapsulated in an environment that has become so mundane 
that everybody comes to us for all the answers. We have forgotten that at one time that room had the space to learn and grow. Now we have exacerbated that space and we've come to the end of that. We need to then evolve and go to the next level. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with where you've been. It just, just means that the things that make us uh, motivated and, and interesting and, and uh, vulnerable is to be in an environment where you're not always so certain, where you do have something to learn. Uh, it stirs up the very best in you as an individual. It's like a relationship that has no mystery, becomes very boring. There, there should always be an evolution where you're still discovering things about yourself and others that you're involved with at the point that there's nothing to talk about and we already know all the answers to everything. Marriage becomes boring. So does teaching. So does business. And so reinventing yourself is important, paramount in business because if you master your craft and you know all the answers to it, society is moving so rapidly today that even though you are a master at it, you may become a master at something like blockbusters and find yourself in a situation, a uh, Netflix world with a, with a master's degree in a blockbusters uh, ideology. What that means simply is that just because you're successful at what you're doing doesn't mean that you shouldn't evolve into the next realm of doing it because if you don't, somebody else is going to come up with the concept that actually puts you out of business. And one of the things, one of the things you've said and you you've repeated many times is that and I'm going to rephrase it or misphrase it, but don't let your past and your mistakes define your future success. Right now, you can learn from them, and and that's a question, which is how do you learn from them? How do you analyze them? But then how do you change so that your future, and, and this applies to entrepreneurship, we'll link it to entrepreneurship, but I'm really interested, like, how do you take right now and say, okay, my past has all these things that blocked me, that prevented me, that made me where I am today. I really want the future to be better. What can I do right now? You know, there's a couple of things. First of all, we have to make sure you don't plant good seed in bad soil. So let's do a soil test. What are you actually good at? A lot of times we are interested in things that we're not really good at. <laughs> and, and to be able to evaluate whether I have adequate enough talent to be able to evolve in this particular realm or not is very important. And in order to de develop or determine that, you have to surround yourself at least with some people with whom you can trust to be really honest with you about whether you really have that or not. For an example, I love music. I play the piano, but I do. I, my love for music does not cover the fact that I don't play well enough to have made a career out of it. I may forever be a fan, but I'll never be a maestro. And understanding the difference between loving something that you enjoy listening at versus participating and, and evolving at a level that you may not have the talent for should not depress you because just because I'm not great at that doesn't mean I'm not great at something else. But if someone comes to you and says, well, uh, Bishop Jakes, uh, how do I, f I don't know. I've been sitting in a cubicle for 30 years. How do I find that? And I just got fired. How do I find what my, my interests are that I'm good at? I don't know. What I talk about in the book is I believe that most of life's answers lie within the human heart. And if you will just take a moment and look over your life and see what were the things that you did that when you did them, uh, the gleam came in your eye and energy came into your spirit and you couldn't go to sleep for thinking of creative ways to do them. Wherever those areas of interest lie that, that invigorate you, those are areas of passion. And passion and purpose are interwoven together in such a significant way that if you follow your passions, you will discover your purpose. And I think, you know, it's very interesting you say that because I always look back, what was I, what was I passionate about at age 13 or 14 or 20 and how has it aged with me? So like you gave the example of the piano, maybe you can't be a maestro at the piano, but if, if it's an incredible passion for you right now, maybe you could write books about it or maybe right. you could teach about it or, or you know, do commentary about it who, or produce it. Who, yes. who knows? So there's, there's always ways to slice a passion other than being the 
the maestro of piano. Absolutely, absolutely. And and for me, uh, we have a huge music and fine arts department at my church because I love music. I surround and you produced uh, yeah, music. I produced music. I got Grammys in it. Uh, I surrounded myself with people who who had that same common interest uh, so that we could develop and, and evolve and do that. I think what's important for that person that's stuck in that cubicle is to understand that the cubicle doesn't define you. Just because it paid you doesn't mean that it defines you. And sometimes it betrays the greater gifts that lie inside of you. Get out, and if you're not sure, volunteer in a new area. Discover a new area. Take it on as a hobby. Do it part-time. Just explore it. I'm not saying that you have to marry it. Explore it. Date your next move. You don't have to get married yet. Just go into the realm. Couple yourself with people who are doing things that you think you would like to do because sometimes... We admire things from the outside that when we get on the inside, it is not as glamorous or as glorious or as fulfilling as we thought it would be. So exploring is important. And I think volunteering sometimes is a good way to just get a test as to whether this atmosphere is what I imagined it to be. It's like opening up a restaurant. You know, maybe you like cuisine, you like fine food, but then when you get in the restaurant business, maybe you don't like the business as much as you thought you would. A lot of times the fact that you like the food doesn't mean you like the business and vice versa. Uh, But if you are interested, and I talk about this in the book, you can hire people to do the parts that you're not good at. And that's so important because what we have a tendency to do is to build teams of people around us who duplicate what we already do. And if you surround surround yourself with people who do what you do, they will compete with you. If you surround yourself with people who are good at what you're not good at, they will complete you. I, I think that's so true. I remember the the very first business I started in the 90s was a, a company creating websites for bigger companies. And I remember, and I, I was the type, I was always trying to do everything myself from design to software to sales to collecting mm-hmm. the invoice. I remember the first time I delegated, it was like, oh my gosh, it's like the light opened up from the heavens. <laughs> yes. Like, this person's going to sit and do what I was going to do while I get to do something else. It's like I doubled my life. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I tell my wife she's often, often getting on me about taking more vacations, and I, vacations are important, and they're a good thing to do. But for a person who is entrepreneurial in their spirit and in their heart, having good people is like going to Hawaii. Because it's no good for me to physically go to Hawaii if I'm still worried about Dallas. The more competent people you surround yourself with, the more you free up your own mental database, whether it's for relaxation or whether it is to take on other assignments or to, as I say in the book, reserve yourself for your highest and best use. That is to say, if you're doing something in your organization that somebody else could do, you shouldn't be doing it. You want to reserve your efforts for your highest and best use. So it might not be that I'm needed at the cash register. I may be needed to amass a team or to market the product or to find that area that you exclusively can contribute on a level that you don't have to worry about somebody else competing there and gradually evolve working yourself out of a job until you are only encumbered with those things that are the best use of your time because at the end of the day, as much as we budget money, money is not our highest commodity. Time is. We we will run out of time before we run out of money. Uh, and so it's so important that we equate some significance and some value to our time. And you want to use your time wisely. It is the one thing that they're not making any more of. Well, you have you have a great quote, which... I read it, and I was like, did he just read an article I wrote last week? But, of course, your book's been out for a while, so maybe I stole from your book. I don't know. Um, I'm going to find the quote because I wrote it down on my pad here. Oh, yeah. You can't be committed to the dream. You have to be committed to the process. Right. And that is so important. Whether you're writing a book, you can't be dreaming about, oh, it's going to be on the bestseller list while you're in chapter one of the book. Or if you're starting a business, you can't be, I'm going to sell this for a billion dollars. You have to be like, well, I need to program better. I need to 
motivate people better. I need to do sales. I need to develop a craft. If you don't love the process, and I know I'm preaching to the choir talking to you. But we're talking <laughs> to the whole audience, too. No, but, but I know that you all actually know this. When when If you love the destination, but you don't love the journey, sometimes it creates an attitude where you get bored with the journey and thereby miss the destination. These overnight wonders end up midnight blunders. And then the other thing about the process that is so important, it is not so much the product, the outcome that is important, it is the things you learn along the way. So if you don't become process-oriented and the only thing you want is the destination, you, you miss the education, you miss the beauty of the craft, you miss the experience, and you become dependent on people under you because you lack the uh, experience to be able to function in those capacities. Yeah, I think, I think depending on under you or over you. Right. Like if, you, if you're too much about pleasing the boss or pleasing a publisher instead of focusing on the craft of what this is the job and I want to be the best at it or I want to be the best writer, if you, if you focus too much on, oh, just who do I have to please, you're never going to get good at, at the craft. You, you won't have a good business. Well, you know from writing books, uh, I tell people all the time, I've never written a book. I, I, I wrote a chapter. I wrote a page. I wrote a page that became a chapter. I wrote a chapter that became another chapter, and gradually it became a book. To sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write a book, for especially first time, it's overwhelming. But if you uh, go about it systematically and you just begin to write a, a chapter or a page or two or a thought or two, gradually, little by little, it grows. And that's the way we grow about everything else in graduations, not in destinations. And the reason I thought it was important enough to put it in the book, there are those exceptions to the rule. There are those sudden wonders, those Kardashian-type people who do something at the right time in the right place and they just explode into notoriety. And, and, they, and they are rare. The ratio is very small of somebody who put a song on YouTube and they got discovered and they got struck rich. And we have one of the problems in our communities today, we have thousands and thousands, if not millions of people waiting in line for that to happen to them. And they're losing so much time waiting on that to happen mm. that they could have been productive all along the way. The process is not that bad. Don't spend years waiting on some miraculous thing to happen. Get in the process because you could have been far more productive if you had not waited on this, this limited quantity of people who become superstars in film or NBA or NFL or whatever area, uh, small tech corporations. Love where you are. Make where you are important. Make it make it the kind of thing that when you get to the end of the day, there's a sense of fulfillment rather than to be frustrated by some goal that doesn't miraculously happen the way you imagined it would. Right. And I think I think that's important too, is that you can't have one you 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 have to have you, you can't be focused on a small uh, goal like money, mm-hmm. and and I hate to put it that way because and and you discuss this really well in in the book. You quote when um, Jesus talks about you know the the love of money mm-hmm. um, is is damaging essentially, uh, and you and but you but you make the point. He's talking about not money but the love of money, right? And this applies to entrepreneurship. Absolutely. If, if you don't like, if the head of Uber said, "I just want to make a billion dollars," he might have. Or he probably would have failed. If he said, I want to improve transportation for all people, right. now he has a purpose. So even the parts of the process that slip for him, where he he blunders a little bit or he doesn't enjoy, he can still refocus himself on, on a, this higher purpose. Yes, you, you, you took the word I was getting ready to say. It's purpose over profit. Uh, because profit without purpose doesn't necessarily bring fulfillment. Uh, there are many, many wealthy people that are miserable, suicidal. We read about them every day committing suicide. So profit doesn't necessarily bring fulfillment. Purpose does. To feel like that you are doing the thing that you were born to do, that you were created to do, uh, to do it because you're passionate about it, because you get fulfillment out of it, that's the way we ought to approach life. And then let the profit follow the purpose. Uh, but I think a purpose-based life is much more fulfilling than a profit-centered life. So let's, even though I, I have many more quotes and examples from the book, let's t- let's rewind and talk about when you found your 
purpose and passion and developed your craft. I mean, 1979, you you was you you taught a class with 10 people in it, mm. and you know, and you probably then discovered, oh my gosh, I have some yeah, skill, I, I have it. some talent. Yeah. Well, I don't know whether I thought I had so much talent or not. I just knew that I loved helping people. Did your voice sound like this then? Yeah, pretty <laughs> then much. And you had some talent. <laughs> I had talent. Well, well you know, you know, I, I sometimes you're the last person to see what you have. Let me say that because sometimes everybody sees it before you do and even when you see it you have trouble believing it depending on your background. It was a long time before I could really appreciate what I contributed. But in the meantime, what I appreciated was I loved helping people. I loved the feeling of adding value to somebody's life, of being there at a time that they needed me. And from that perspective, I entered into this stream of sharing ministry and, and giving my life to it. It wasn't that I thought that I was masterful at it, and my environment did not reflect that I was masterful at it. I had seven or ten members to join when I started. That's not always the thing. Don't count your worth by the reactions of mm. people because people are fickle. You can go in and out of style with the wind. This is coming from inside, not from outside. I knew that I loved, uh, I think my destiny is to help you reach yours. The more that I help you reach your destiny, the more fulfilled I am as an individual. And, and whether it is in film or in, in mentorship or in ministry, in some way contributing to others has this boomerang effect that it comes back to you in ways that are very, very fulfilling. And, you know, it, it seems like you started off uh, helping the group that was in most need of help. So yeah. you were in the, the South and your initial ministry, I mean, your, your first book was Woman Thou Art Loosed. Mm -hmm. So your initial ministry was, was to women, was to women, to minority women in the South who probably all felt stuck. Yeah. And, and what what did you say to them at first, you know, to kind of, where you sensed, oh, I'm helping these women? I think it's bigger than minority women. I think women in general in, in, in this country, back when I wrote Woman Thou Art Loosed was 25, 30 years ago, felt unheard, invisible. Uh, minimalized, uh, disenfranchised. And, and as a pastor sitting up counseling women, I heard it. I heard it in their speech. And it made me study before I spoke to understand more aptly how do you get these women to realize, first of all, that the pain and the secrets that they have are not unique, that there are other women who have been abused, that there are other women who were being raped, that there were other women who had been through adversities and traumas, that there were other women who had been minimalized and, and made to feel insignificant. That was the first objective. And initially, it is quite obvious in minority communities, but it is also true in, in white communities as well. And, and the country is evolving, and we're seeing great evolution over the last three decades in terms of the roles women play. But at the time that I wrote Women Are Loose, we were not seeing that. And even though we are seeing it today, even as recently as the Me Too movement, we're still... Uh, unearthing areas where women have endured uh, hardships that 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 they said nothing about, and though they may have had a six-figure, seven-figure job, it doesn't mean that 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 it came without pain. So, women that are loose is always relevant because it's it's about uh, evolving as as a person, whether you're a woman of color or a white woman, or it's been translated into twelve different languages. So, it's a universal. It started. With black women. So, 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 what did you say? Like, so the first thing was, hey, other people have experienced this adversity. You're not alone. And, You're not alone. Right. And I think, and, and to your point, it doesn't even apply to just women, it applies to men, yes. entrepreneurs, anybody who's has this feeling of being stuck or have had some, you know, prior experiences. Maybe they lost all their money. Maybe they had a bad marriage. Maybe mm -hmm. they had a bad family experience. Maybe they've are coming out of jail. Who knows? Right. But what now? So now you're not alone. What's next? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month. I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb 
on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop. Really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So now you're not alone. What's next? Once you find out that you're not alone, it changes how you see yourself because a lot of times we blame ourselves. Look, what did I do so stupid that that this happened to me? Why am I like Mm. this? And so there's a certain thing that you get out of camaraderie. Then the next thing is to look for people who survived whatever the vicissitude was that you found yourself ensnared with, whether it was lack of cash or lack of education or some abuse that had happened in your life. And there are survivors. And I've always rationalized in my own mind, if you can survive it, I can too. So if I can find one survivor that overcame something that seems to limit me, then what did you do to listen, to learn from each other? We were meant as a species to be interdependent, not independent. And though we strive 
tenaciously to be totally independent. Uh, independent is to be isolated. And you can't, no, no species can be fruitful in isolation. We are interdependent. We learn from each other. So I would say the next step is making connections with other people who are on the journey with you. They strengthen you. They feel you. We can learn something from birds that flock together, that the flapping of each other's wings causes the velocity beneath the wings to soar higher. If it's true about birds, it's also true about people. Get with people who are upwardly mobile, who want to go where you're trying to go. And no one bird by himself may produce the, the, enough, the, the kind of uplift to cause you to escalate into the realm that you're trying to go. But if all of us start flapping together at the same time, we're going to make some distance. That's true about life. That's true about recovering addicts. That's true about people coming out of prison. That's true about entrepreneurs. That's why we, in business, we would call it networking. Uh, uh, in, in nature, we would call it cross-pollinization. Uh, it is just the expression of the fact that if you have a dream that you can do by yourself, it's not worthy of you. So interesting because um, right at this table a few weeks ago, I was interviewing Ken Langone, who's the founder of Home Depot and is a billionaire. Mm -hmm. And he said, I will always deny if anyone calls me a self-made man. Mm -hmm. I am not a self-made man. There's been hundreds of people who were involved in doing what I was doing and, and helped me achieve success. Absolutely. My mother used to say it this way. She said, if you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, and though the image is funny, the truth is quite profound. Uh, you you don't get there by yourself. You don't become a great anything by yourself. You don't become a great mother by yourself. You don't become a great man by yourself. There are contributors all along the way that help to make the sum total of who we ultimately become, whether we want to acknowledge them or not. And so the books that we share with each other is our way of leaving. For me, it's like leaving uh, crumbs behind in the forest, little signs and clues of this worked for me, this helped me. And sometimes you'll take a little bit from me and you'll take a little bit from you and a little bit from somebody else and they'll create their own reality. It's not so much that you want to imitate anybody or even duplicate them, but we're looking for ways that we can cross-pollinate ideas and thereby be more fruitful as a species. Well, gosh, you just put me on three different tangents in my head. <laughs> One is um, you talk about how, the importance of exposing yourself to lots of different influences. You talk about seeing um, the vendors in Times Square mm -hmm. or the Australian natives making boomerangs or mm -hmm. Nairobi villagers making hats mm -hmm. and then how we could learn from all of these influences to, to have a unique perspective. And I think that's incredibly important. Yes, it's very, very important. The more you can expose yourself, the more you grow as a person. I think one of the greatest treasures of my life is to have gotten to have traveled around the world and met so many different people and different cultures. It It is a great deterrent to ignorance it is a great deterrent to bigotry. It is a great deterrent mm -hmm. to limiting yourself to your own neighborhood and thinking that your neighborhood or community, as it were, is the world. So many people say, you know, like people give up on life and they want to commit suicide and they say the world is turned against me. You haven't met the world. There's, there's, if, you, if you just get in your car and drive two or three miles, you run into a whole new world of people. Start over again. Your situation is not the world. And the more you go out there and you meet other cultures and other kinds of people who live their lives differently, who have different values, who have different priorities, the more your imagination says, I could rethink my life. Maybe the way I was taught is not the only way for me to live. You mentioned earlier uh, the difference in the uh, debt ratio for uh, and the, the diminishing of middle class. And, and I wanted to say this. Many times the parents that trained us trained us for their world, but we had to work it in our own generation. Mm. So they told us, go to school, get a degree, come out, you get a good job, work the job 30 years, you get a gold watch, you retire and move to Florida. 
But by the time we got old enough to do that, those realities had all changed. So there has to be a certain fluidity. While we appreciate their training, it is the impetus of our development. We cannot stop growing at that point. We must keep evolving by being exposed to the fact that the world is forever changing. And so we have to create new streams of income, new ideas of ways of living. Um, it used to be maybe you wanted to get a house in the suburbs, or maybe now you want a, a, a condo, or maybe you want an apartment that's on the 18th floor. The world is changing, and it is only limited to how we think. We are the only species uh, that has changed its world. You don't, you don't see uh, rabbits building condos. You don't see possums driving cars. Look, look at how creative we have been, particularly in the last 300 years. Most of the things that we call normal have only existed for the last two or 300 years, whether you're talking about automobiles or airplanes or, or microwaves or computers or laptops. If you went back 300 years, you, you wouldn't hardly know how to bake bread. The fact I still that, don't know how to make <laughs> The fact that we've been that creative in a short time shows you how quickly we can change our world if we focus. So, so, but, and, and related to that though, with so many people experience adversity and then, and are trying to find their way out of it. And you mentioned, there's two phrases you mentioned earlier. One is uh, the use of the word vulnerability, to use vulnerability to become a student again. Mm -hmm. And the other is you use the phrase midnight blunders. Mm -hmm. So so I'm an example of someone who I sold my first business and then I just simply lost everything. I, lost, I was stupid. I lost all my money and I was ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. So I didn't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't vulnerable enough to find other people maybe who could have either helped or been in my situation. I didn't, I didn't, I thought I actually was alone. Mm -hmm. And so how do, how do you get people to overcome? Like, well, let me start off by saying, when did you, it seems like when I look at your career trajectory, it's like straight up. You had 10 people in your class and a hundred in your first church and 300 and, and it grows <laughs> to 300,000. And it seems like a straight line. Like, did you ever have that midnight blunder where you, where, where you had to kind of, become vulnerable and, and and face that shame? I'm trying to figure out which one to tell you about first. They, <laughs> they repossessed my car. Um, my, my, my oldest daughter was born on WIC. We look, couldn't keep our utilities on at one time uh, in my life. When we started doing films, much when we started doing plays much later in my life, the first three plays we did, uh, we lost our shirt. <laughs> we couldn't even did, pay. Did you everybody. feel like shame? Like here's uh, Bishop Jakes, and he's doing this thing, and he might, you know, get in financial trouble. Like, were you able to to be vulnerable about I it? I felt shame. I I was angry. I was embarrassed. I was humiliated. I hate losing. You know, I hate losing. Were you scared? I was scared to death. I was scared to death. But I'm not the kind of person to walk away from a fight. And that's something you have to know about me. I went back and got with other people who were doing what I was trying to do better, and I formed a partnership. And at that time, that partnership was with Tyler Perry. <laughs> and, and, and we formed a partnership. He was just getting started. He wasn't who he is now. He was just right outside of sleeping in the car. But he had, he had figured out a way to do the place better than I could. We partnered together, and we started doing some plays together. I learned something. How did you partner? Did you say, I'll bring, you know, I have an audience that I can help bring to your place? Yeah, or? yeah, it's like a potluck dinner. Mm -hmm. I have a, it's some influence and you have some influence. I have a story that needs to be told and some credibility behind that story. And you have some craftsmanship and you have some partners out here that, that you know how to rent out the houses and go on the tours and do that sort of thing. That That's what I mean about partnerships. You want to build partnerships with people who are strong where you're weak, and, and then your contribution is to be strong in areas where they have weaknesses. And then I met him, and that brought me to Reuben Cannon, who saw the plays that, that, that we had done and decided that they should be on film. And we put we entered them into the Santa Barbara Film Festival. We won the film festival. And then Michael Litton, who knew me from the literary world, saw Woman Thou Art Loose and gave me a first look deal with Sony Pictures that I've had for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing is many, many steps. The Bible says it this way, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. There are many, many steps. 
Have there been tripping on the steps? Yes. Have I declined on the steps? Yes. Have I failed many times? Uh, but I never quit. And I earnestly believe you'll win if you don't quit. And as it relates to vulnerability. But we, how do you know what, how do you, you, sometimes you do have to quit. Like let's mm -hmm. say an abusive relationship or a business where like, like the world's changed and you didn't change with it. So now the business is in trouble. When do you know when, when to quit or shift or pivot? Qu quit the relationship, but don't quit loving. See? See, I so think, zoom out. Yeah, yes, yes. On the vision. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe you quit that type of business and you start another one. Just because that business failed doesn't mean that you're not an entrepreneur. There's some. There are some things to be learned. I talk about in the book uh, about checking the environment around you, not just being so intrinsic with the business that you don't check the environment. Because, as you know, the book is written around the Wright brothers and their flight patterns and all of that. And 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 they launched at Kitty Hawk because the winds were right. They didn't even build it at Kitty Hawk. Sometimes you can build the right thing in the wrong place. So location, location, location. You learn that. You fail. You fail to learn that. That costs you to learn that. Education always has tuition. I feel like, so So with your ministry, I feel like, I mean, I've watched your sermons. I, I see you in, in, in person. It seems like how could that have ever done anything but go straight up? <laughs> like you, you, you're like... The, the best in the world at what you do. So so did you ever see kind of like a slip in the in the growth of your ministry that that made you nervous? Absolutely. <laughs> any any kind of slip makes me nervous. Uh I watch everything. Every greatness is determined by how much you respect details. So if you have any aspiration for greatness and you don't have respect for details, you'll never be great. Greatness is not so much the big things, it's the details. So anytime there's any kind of movement in any kind of way, I immediately start evaluating because you want to fix the problem as quickly as possible. Uh, if I'm out of touch with people or if I'm I'm not sensitive to a changing trend, to evolve, to have the evolution is a very, very important part of growth and development. So yes, I've had many, 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 many setbacks. The, those setbacks, though, I don't see them as something to be ashamed of. I see them as fuel. Uh, and so you, so you have the self-awareness to recognize, okay, this didn't go exactly as I planned. Let's analyze. You had some self-awareness there. Yes. And I think a lot of people don't have that self-awareness. Like, it seems like an, a muscle you have to develop. Well, what happens, let, let's apply it to relationships because I think that is where we are most apt to do this. If you get hurt, the tendency is to never love again. Rather than to say, I, I, I got involved with the wrong person, you give up on everybody. That's too extreme. Let's, let's do some, some, some study and research and find out what about it went wrong. Mm. And when you get down to the specificity of what went wrong, maybe it's not that I married a bad person, but we're bad together. Well, what kind of person are you good with? And, and and just taking the time to rationalize rather than to make decisions out of your emotions and say, oh, the business went down. I'm a bad person. I'm not any good at this. I can't do it anymore. Maybe you had the wrong team. Maybe you had the wrong time. Maybe you had the wrong location. Let's figure, let's fix what's broken and keep going forward. The Wright brothers ended up getting their plane in the air, not because they were the first ones to come up with the idea. They were the first ones not to quit. And so a relentless commitment to the to the concept, not the details. The details may have to be altered, but a relentless commitment to I know I'm on to something. I may have to make some adjustments. We may have to fix this wing. We may have to lighten up the materials. We may have to catch the right velocity of wind, but we're going to get this thing in the air. You have to be that kind of person or... You shouldn't be an entrepreneur. You should work for somebody. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Well, well, it's interesting. I love the Wright brothers analogy because there's a, there's an aspect of their success that really impresses me. You know, they were, obviously, you know this, they were, and you write about this, they were bicycle manufacturers mm -hmm. in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and the key insight they had right before Kitty Hawk was that, that, that the U.S. government, which was competing against them to get the first plane they didn't have, was that, when someone learns to ride a bicycle, they wobble a little bit. It's okay for a plane 
to wobble. Right. It's okay for you to have a little turbulence while you're going into the air. Absolutely. And I think that's true for any, like if you're a beginning entrepreneur, you're not going to get every sale right away. No. You're, you're, going, you're going to wobble at anything. If you're, if you, if you're raising a child, you're going to wobble. You, you, they don't come with manuals. You're going to make some mistakes. At marriage, you're going to run it. And, and I think it's never been more important to have this message out there than it is right now with a younger generation who saw us at our destination but didn't see us in our journey. So they are trained toward winning and not toward the process. And so the book is very, very important because in the book, I really break down the struggles of the process, the importance of the process, and the education that's learned from the process. The experience that you learn from failing and falling is absolutely priceless. And I really equate more tenacity and strength was drawn from the hard times than from the good times. Nobody has to teach you how to react when you win. Right. Well, and also that what has to happen is speed by which you are aware, hey, I failed and that and I might have lessons from that. Mm-hmm. I think my biggest mistake was it took a long time for me to realize, oh, there's lessons that might I might learn from my failure. If I had just thought that one thought years earlier than I did, then it would have been much faster for recovery. But look at it, the the amazing way you recreated yourself over and over and over and over again. That comes from a tenacious, relentless spirit that refuses to die. That doesn't come from a wallet. That doesn't come from a degree. That doesn't come from owning a building. That comes from a heart that keeps beating even when the lungs are out of air. And I think that that's what we're really talking about is getting to the heart of the matter, who you are at your core. There has to be something in you that pressed down to the ground you, there's something in you that just keeps beating like a stubborn heart that says, you know, I'm going to find a way through the forest of my confusion uh, into the daylight of my understanding. And that may take me weeks and it may take me months and I may need some help and I may have to get dug out, but I'm going to face this and fight this every day. That creates people like you, that creates people like me and people that are listening to us right now. And uh, like right now, it seems like I don't know, you've achieved so many things between writing, your ministry, movies, music, all the, all the you know, you've advised th- three presidents. What's, what's next for you? How do you evolve from here? Because evolution can't, can't stop. They say, they say the two most dangerous years in a person's life is the, de- the year they're born and the year they retire. Right. So obviously you're never going to retire how do you keep evolving? You know, for me right now, I'm on this big binge. I guess it's a, the age I'm at or the the thought process that I'm in right now. I love helping uh, younger people find their way. Uh, I'm a strong advocate for for young uh, people, millennials and, and and younger who are struggling. I, I I'm a cheerleader. I just think you can do it. Let's fix this. Let's get in here and resolve the problem. My big passion now is giving myself away to other people and sowing what I learn into other people to to know that as I get older and finally do leave this world, that I have been fruitful, that I have reproduced after my own kind, that I've been a voice for the voiceless. Uh, we have a huge outreach to uh, ex-offenders. Our Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative has seen over 16,000 people go through that program, placing them in jobs and helping them to get homes and helping them to get up on our feet again. America has to realize that the people that we ignore will always come back to destroy us. We have to become involved with less fortunate people or we will build higher and higher walls around our homes until we ourselves are incarcerated. How do you think America can do that? Oh, there's so much we can do. <laughs> uh, we, we, we can start giving uh, attention to trades and, and skills, manual labors at decent wages. We can uh, start becoming concerned and enter into areas where we have created some of the problems that are self-fulfilling prophecies of doom Mm. by huddling together people with no hope, no job, no education, no opportunities, and then looking at them later and saying, why are you angry and shooting yourself? You know, we, we can go back and fix some of the things that we tried earlier that didn't work. Our country has a problem with fixing our mistakes. We tend to want to move on from our mistakes without fixing our mistakes. Almost like an individual. 
Right, right. And I think we need to go back and fix some of those sociological mistakes that have created conundrums. Our war on crime has turned jail into business, and it has become a new form of slavery. Both Republicans and Democrats acknowledge it, but nobody's fixing it. They've been talking about it for years. There have been people died in prison waiting on them to fix things that they realized years ago, but because of the slowed wheels of our of our country's uh, uh, political system, people are dying waiting on us to get to things that really matter rather than getting to things that get us elected. Those kinds of things are great fixes for the the fact that we need energy and new forms of energy and creating new jobs for people in new areas has to start in elementary school. And we have to turn our inner cities as well as our Rust Belt states into factories of human production where we no longer discard people black, white, or brown, but we use those people as talents to rebuild this new America. We, we have to become the people that we were hundreds of years ago in terms of rebuilding this country and seeing people as a resource. When I'm in Africa, I tell them all the time, Many, many countries have come to Africa and they saw the gold and they saw the ivory and they saw the silver as resources and they took all they could and left, never knowing that the greatest resources were the people themselves. And and learning how to invest in those people mm-hmm. is what makes us human. It, it's what makes us like God. It's what makes us created in the likeness and the image of a God because we care and we reach out to other people. You know, and again, this is so important for entrepreneurship because the success of your business is in how you invest in people. Um, I have two more quick questions. I know uh, we have a, a, a time constraint. I feel like I could talk to you for 24 straight hours. Um, the first is not a question, but an idea. I think you should do side by side with this book, a workbook, a sore workbook. You have in here a great guide to building not just a business plan, but almost like a mental map of how your business and your entrepreneurship and your future should look. And I think that alone, the whole book is great, but that alone, every entrepreneur and everybody who just wants to reinvent themselves should, should take a look. It's really brilliant. But we've even in this podcast also talked about how you find your interests, how you know when you should, you know, quit a smaller thing and zoom out to a bigger thing. Like there's lots of like workbook-like things that could happen here. I do have a workbook. All right. <laughs> and, and, and I did it for that did very reason. Did I miss re- that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it for that very reason because it, 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 when you read the book, you're, you're reading my words. When you get the workbook, it is a collaborative effort that requires your mind and your input along with mine to develop strategies to move you further and further along. And you're, you're spot on about the workbook. It is very, very important because the workbook takes the truths of the book and cuts it to the continuity of the individual circumstances. And I think that's vitally important. I think it's vitally important. I think I think it's so interesting. And I think, again, entrepreneurship is not just about making money. It's about relationships. It's about having a vision. It's about finding your purpose and your interests and your passions, which make you happy in life. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, with, with the final question, because you're so, you're so good at this in what you do, but, but to get people motivated to work for you and with you and alongside of you, you have to motivate them with things other than money. And obviously you've done this all of your life, you, you know, using the ministry and and other other activities you've been involved in, what's the best way to 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 transfer a vision that might be in your head and and give it to the people alongside of you? So they're so they're signed up for reasons other than money that they're engaged. I, I think it's it's vitally important. People don't stay with you over money, and if if money is the only thing that holds them to you, it's only they're only going to be there a short time before somebody offers him more and then they're going to be gone. And this this prostitution-style corporation mm-hmm. will never really become what it really needs to be because there is there's no glue to hold it together. It's just transactional. It's not relational. And we were designed to be relational and not transactional. In order to accomplish that then, we must inspire people. And inspiring people, not so much with us, but with our dream and with our vision, until they see it, that's part of it. But the deeper part of it is, is to inspire them to see how their dream fits into ours. So how do you see what their dream is and and intersect them? You have to invest some time with the people that are with you. 
You have to you have to stop talking and listen at them. You have to see what they're dreaming of and see how that dream could fit into the context of the overall vision that you have. And if it doesn't fit, you have to be liquid enough to say, this probably is not going to work for you long term. And then you have to mm-hmm. see them through the prism of the fact that this is somebody who is what I call scaffolding. Uh, they they come until the building is erected and then they move away. And there are people that are going to be seasonally in your life, and that's okay. If they're going to be long-term players in your life, you've got to show them how their vision can find its fulfillment with you or it doesn't work. Whether it's a marriage or a business or a ministry or whatever it is, you cannot rob my vision and make me give up my vision for yours. That's not inspiration. That's slavery. Mm. What you want to do is show me how my vision fits into the overall context of your vision and then celebrate me as I discover my vision within the umbrella of your own. So so coming from such a great communicator as you, I think that's that's incredible advice to, uh, to end this podcast with. Thank you so much, Bishop Jakes, for coming on. The book is Soar by T.D. Jakes. It's all about entrepreneurship, but so much more. I encourage people to read this. And if you're new to Bishop Jakes, watch his videos on YouTube, watch his sermons. They're all educational and fascinating. And again, the book is sore. Thanks again, Bishop, for coming on. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. 